It's 6 p.m. and you are tuned to your community radio station, KVMR FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Monday, February 14th, 2022. This is the KVMR Evening News. Up ahead on the California Report, mask mandates are dropping throughout the state, but they'll remain at immigration detention centers where COVID-19 is spreading and booster shots are hard to come by. Then in national native news, a 29-year-old cold case comes to a close. Stephen Downs has been convicted of the 1993 murder of Sophie Sergi at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. But at a vigil for Sergi held Friday, the Fairbanks Native Association said unsolved homicides of Alaska Native women need more resources. We'll turn to local news and weather before we hear from science correspondent Al Stoller. This is the California Report. I'm Alex Hall in Fresno. Well, it was a party across Los Angeles last night following the Rams' 23-20 victory over the Cincinnati Bengals in Super Bowl 56. The game came down to the wire when late in the fourth quarter, Rams quarterback Matthew Stafford connected with his favorite wideout, Cooper Cup. Here's Al Michaels with the call on NBC Sports. Pass. Touchdown. LA's defense would then make a key stop on fourth down on the Bengals' next drive to seal the victory. Cup was named Super Bowl MVP after catching eight passes for 92 yards and two touchdowns. The celebration didn't only take place at SoFi Stadium for Rams fans as it spilled onto the streets across Los Angeles. People were on top of a Metro bus and they were uh, shaking it and uh, tagging it with graffiti, unfortunately. That's helicopter reporter Desmond Shaw with KCAL 9 Television. Police did issue multiple dispersal orders for the downtown area. No word on if there were any arrests. Immigrant rights advocates are warning Cambodian communities about deportations in the coming weeks. KPCC's Josie Huang reports. U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement has deported hundreds of Cambodians in recent decades. Many have been here since they were kids, but because they have criminal convictions, ICE says they are safety threats. During the pandemic, deportations fell sharply, but a new prasad of the Asian Law Caucus in San Francisco says they're starting up again. One sign? Some Cambodians are being told to do their regular check-ins with immigration earlier than scheduled. It's just injustice being piled on top of injustice. We're in a community which arrived at genocide, then got resettled in our most violent, impoverished neighborhoods impacted by mass incarceration and the drug war in the U.S., the news is creating anxiety in Cambodian communities such as Long Beaches. City Council member Suli Saro says the deportations break up families and lives that have been rebuilt. It's really hard for the whole community because we're tired. We've been fighting this for so many years. ICE declined an interview, but in a statement said it prioritizes the removal of, quote, non-citizens who pose a threat to national security, public safety, and border security. For the California Report, I'm Josie Huang. Mask mandates are soon disappearing for most people in California, but they'll remain in place at congregate settings like immigrant detention centers, where COVID is spreading, but detained people say it's been tough to get a booster shot to protect themselves. KQED's Farida Javala Romero reports. Last month, the number of people detained by Immigration and Customs Enforcement who got COVID-19 skyrocketed from about 300 to more than 3,000 as Omicron spread across the country. 
The CDC has recommended booster shots for all adults since last fall, and it prefers Moderna and Pfizer shots, which are more effective. But people locked up at ICE facilities in California report there's long delays to get a booster or that they can't get the more effective ones, says Edwin Carmona Cruz with the California Collaborative for Immigrant Justice. There are uh, massive efforts across the state and across the nation to be vaccinated, to be boosted, right? And so when you look at this population that's in immigration detention, they're forgotten. Advocates worry most about the thousands of detainees nationwide with medical conditions and a higher risk of getting really sick from COVID. <coughs> People like Enrique Cristobal Meneses, who has asthma. My lungs hurt. I've been coughing uh, since the, uh, since the 21st. He's been coughing since the 21st of January. That was just days after he says officials placed a new detainee with fever and other COVID symptoms in his dorm, violating ISIS pandemic protocols. He says within a week, he and 17 others tested positive. He blames the facility. I was frustrated because there was a lot of detainees, including myself, that I was already uh, displaying some of the symptoms. <laughs> and I feel like their negligence puts our health and our life at risk. Cristobal wasn't boosted because the facility only offers the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, he says. And he had a bad reaction the first time he took it. A spokesman for the GEO Group, the company that operates Golden State Annex, declined to comment on Cristobal's story. He said boosters are available, but wouldn't say which kind. A spokesman with another prison company, Management and Training Corporation, that also runs an ICE detention center in California, says they get boosters from ICE, which has only had J&J. Medical experts have all said that to only offer the Johnson & Johnson vaccine to somebody as a booster shot falls below uh, the standard of care that is expected for anybody in the country. Eunice Cho is an attorney with the ACLU. She filed a lawsuit last month on behalf of medically vulnerable ICE detainees who couldn't get boosters at all, including at the California facility where Cristobal is held. It is really inconceivable at this point that ICE has not gotten its act together to provide uh, COVID-19 boosters to people in detention. Uh, this really just goes beyond the pale. ICE says it is committed to CDC guidelines and working to get Pfizer and Moderna booster shots. But a spokeswoman declined to answer questions about how many detainees have gotten boosters, citing the lawsuit. Meanwhile, Carmona Cruz and other advocates met with officials at the California Department of Public Health to ask them to order detention centers in the state to offer the more effective boosters. Requesting um, the state to intervene and to protect the health and safety of immigrants in the state when there's federal inaction. The California Department of Public Health says they're looking into it, but have no comment at this time. On Friday, an immigration judge granted Enrique Cristobal Meneses the right to stay in the U.S. Still, ICE can hold him for up to 90 more days, but advocates want him released sooner so he can fully recover from the effects of COVID. For the California Report, I'm Farida Javala Romero. Support for the California Report comes from Stanford HealthCare, alerting listeners to the critical blood shortage in the area. Now's the time to donate blood and make a difference. StanfordBloodCenter.org. The Wesley Foundation, investing in California's underserved youth. 
and Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. And that's the California Report for this Monday, February 14th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Alex Hall. Thanks for listening and have a great Valentine's Day. Up ahead in national native news, the 1993 murder of 20-year-old Sophie Sergi is a mystery no longer. Guilty verdicts were handed down to Stephen Downs for the crime which took place on the University of Alaska Fairbanks campus. However, at a vigil for Sergi following the court's decision, the Fairbanks Native Association pointed to the case as just one example of the substantial violence against Indigenous people, particularly Native women. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Members of the Native community in Fairbanks, Alaska, held a vigil Friday in memory of Sophie Sergi. A day after, a jury handed down guilty verdicts to a man who killed the young Alaska Native woman in 1993, at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. People gathered in front of a courthouse holding candles and signs with Sophie's name. Tanana Chiefs Conference and the Fairbanks Native Association organized the vigil. FNA live-streamed the event. A lot of times we don't get justice as Native people, and that's wrong, but we never give up hope. Jessica Black is board president of the Fairbanks Native Association. The violence against Alaska Natives, especially women, is at record levels. The cases of missing and murdered Indigenous peoples are high. I am not going to say anything new today that hasn't been said since Sophie's murder almost 30 years ago. Alaska Native women must take safer measures when they are out and about. Be conscious of their surroundings and do not put themselves in vulnerable positions. More importantly, speak up. (laughs) According to the Fairbanks Native Association, there are between 35 to 40 unsolved homicide cases in the Fairbanks area, with some dating back to the 1970s. The organizations recently started a justice initiative to draw awareness to cases, support families, and work with law enforcement. The vigil ended with songs to honor Sergi. National Congress of American Indians President Fawn Sharp is delivering the 2022 State of Indian Nations Address Monday to tribal leaders, members of Congress, and government officials. The address outlines priorities for the year and future visions for tribal nations across the country. Congresswoman Sharice Davids is delivering the congressional response. For the first time, the Native Youth Commission is giving remarks. The address is part of NCAI's Executive Council Winter Session. Tribal leaders from across the country are taking part in the meeting to hear from members of Congress and the Biden administration. Two interactive fireside chats are included this year to provide a time for questions and comments from tribal leaders. Tribes manage millions of acres of wildlife habitat but are faced with funding challenges. A bill in Congress would provide a boost in carrying out projects. Mike Moen reports. The Tribal Wildlife Corridors Act would set aside $50 million each year for a grant program. Bill sponsors say it would ensure tribal nations have the resources to implement and maintain corridors for various species. Shaylin Miller of the Native American Fish and Wildlife Society says 
Roads and other development interfere with wildlife migration, and tribes often don't have funds to shield lands from these disruptions. Tribes are severely underfunded and at a huge disadvantage due to extremely limited resources, especially when compared to state or federal wildlife agencies. The plan also calls for coordination among federal and state agencies with respect to property rights of tribes. It's unclear yet if the proposal faces any opposition. It was introduced back in August, and last week, the National Wildlife Federation sent a letter to Congress urging lawmakers to support the bill. The South Dakota chapter is among those joining calls for its passage. Chris Hesla directs the South Dakota Wildlife Federation. He sees this as a vital initiative as the state continues to see wetlands dry up. It's just important that there's a, a tool out there for the tribes to be able to enter into these agreements and and work projects on their land. He suggests it could aid existing projects like one that's been developing on the Lower Brule Indian Reservation. In recent years, conservationists have been trying to boost the population of a threatened species known as the black-footed ferret. Project leaders say it's been difficult to compete for grants through other federal programs. That was Mike Moen, and I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by StrongHearts Native Helpline, providing no-charge confidential support and resources to Native Americans affected by domestic and sexual violence 24-7 at 1-844-7-NATIVE or strongheartshelpline.org. Support by the American Indian College Fund, providing millions of dollars of scholarships to Native students every year. Applications for the upcoming school year are now accepted at collegefund.org or by phone at 800-766-FUND. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. Now let's take a look at today's regional news. Nevada County Public Health reports 85 new confirmed COVID-19 cases for Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. 4,894 cases are active, 20 people are hospitalized, and 3 are in the ICU. Nevada County's Public Health Officer, Dr. Sherilyn Cook, announced that Nevada County will revert to the California State Health Officer order come Wednesday. This requires unvaccinated individuals to wear masks in public spaces. All individuals must wear masks in specific indoor settings regardless of vaccination status. Such settings include public transportation, K-12 schools and childcare, healthcare settings, detention centers, senior care facilities, and more. As the local masking order is rescinded, it's still highly recommended that everyone, regardless of vaccination status, wear a high-quality mask while in public spaces. Quote, Our local case rate is lower than statewide data, and we continue to see a sharp decrease in cases. However, we continue to have a high transmission and should continue to take precautions until our case rate is considerably lower, said Public Health Officer Dr. Sherilyn Cook. Dr. Cook recommends the combined approach of high-quality masks in conjunction with the vaccine, saying the immunity provided from the vaccination is broader than when someone gets infected. The USDA Forest Service requests public comments on a proposal to remove hazardous trees from the Caldor Fire area. The Lake Tahoe Basin Management Unit explains that the Hazard Tree and Fuels Reduction Project aims to improve safety and reduce fuel loading by removing burnt trees 
or those likely to die because of fire damage. The project would also remove trees that pose a hazard to roads, trails, private property, and developed recreation sites impacted by the Caldor Fire. Comments can be submitted online through March 14th. Now through March, Caltrans continues their hazardous tree removal work along several highways throughout the Sierra. Motorists should expect intermittent one-way traffic control. Caltrans says most tree removals will occur Monday through Friday from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. Drivers should plan on delays up to 30 minutes. This week, work will be done on State Route 20 in Nevada County from Scotts Flat Road to White Cloud Campground, State Route 49 in Yuba County from Marysville Road to Camp Pendola Road, State Route 193 in El Dorado County from Penobscot Road to Bear Creek Road, and I-80 from State Route 174 connection to Monta Vista. The I-80 work requires the closure of the number 2 eastbound lane Monday through Wednesday and the number 2 westbound lane Thursday through Friday. The Tahoe National Forest hopes to have public input on its proposed Pines to Mines Trail project. The Pines to Mines multi-use trail would run 68 miles in length and would connect Nevada City to Truckee. It would include existing Forest Service network trails, but also involve some new trail construction. A detailed project proposal is available on the Tahoe National Forest website. Those interested in submitting input can do so online before February 25th. Now let's take a look at our regional weather. A quick moving weather system will sweep across Northern California this evening into tomorrow. The system brings scattered showers to the Northern Sierra along with cooler temperatures and breezy south winds. North winds return Tuesday and Wednesday and may lead to locally elevated fire weather concerns. For those in Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight, a 50% chance of showers. Yes, you heard correctly, possible showers. It'll be mostly cloudy with a low around 34, wind could gust as high as 20 miles per hour. Tomorrow, back to sun with a high near 57 and gusts as high as 21 miles per hour. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight a 70% chance of rain or snow before 11 p.m. Mostly cloudy with a low around 21, gusts as high as 25 miles per hour. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy, then gradually becoming sunny with a high near 34 and gusts up to 20 miles per hour. The Truckee-Tahoe region sees a brief return to winter weather this evening into Tuesday morning. The National Weather Service has issued a special weather advisory and a lake wind advisory. Wind-prone areas along US-395 may gust up to 60 miles per hour, with Sierra Ridge gusts up to 100 miles per hour. Rain and snow will move southward Monday evening through Tuesday morning. Accumulations of 1 to 3 inches of snow are possible for the Tahoe Basin and Sierra, Plumas, and Lassen counties. Prepare for sharply colder temperatures near or below freezing. Factor in extra travel time for Tuesday morning. The strong winds may create waves up to 4 feet on Lake Tahoe. Expect impacts to outdoor recreation, ski lift operations, and possible tree damage. Moving down south to Sacramento and Woodland, tonight, partly cloudy with a low around 44 and gusts as high as 23 miles per hour. Tomorrow, sunny with a high near 70 and gusts up to 26 miles per hour. Most cars move forward, back, left, or right, but some cars, a few, travel straight up, straight down. 
Science correspondent Al Stoller spoke with Colfax resident Dave White. Large construction projects are generally built by crews of carpenters, plumbers, electricians. But there's one crew that does everything. Elevator constructors. I spoke with former elevator constructor David White. Did you do everything like mechanical or electrical? Oh, yeah, we do all our own welding. Uh, ran it, we run all our electrical. We were painting our rails that the cars run on one time. And the paint foreman goes, well, I need to get my guys in there. I go, well, we're not painting. We're rust-proofing. We do all our own work, and nobody else can go in there. Much like railroad cars, elevator cars run on rails. Does each elevator car have two rails, one on each side? Uh, yeah, and then two counterweight rails in the back. There's four all together in each edge. As your elevator is going up, there's a counterweight going down. Right. The elevator car might be lifted by a hydraulic ram, the sort of ram a mechanic uses to lift your car into the air. But hydraulic elevators are limited to only a few stories. As that ram goes up and gets uh, smaller and smaller telescopic, the uh, uh, elevator has a tendency to wiggle around and you know, make noise and it kind of scares people. Wiggling on an elevator would be scary. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It just starts slamming, you know, against the rails back and forth. The elevator car might rise 20 miles an hour, but that could be challenging. As the newer ones came out, they were like sucking the doors off of the hull. There was a time, uh, uh, so I don't want to use names, but they came out with a model and the doors were wired wrong. And uh, when they closed, they would close like slam shut. You know, they were breaking people's arms. And so they had to come back out and fix them all, all over the United Holy States. Smart. Should your car begin to fall, it's got brakes. Bang, it activates those mechanical shoes. Then if those fail, as you go down, the hatch, you'll have a speed switch is there that will slow you down. And as you go down, it gets slower and slower if everything works right. And then stops you before you hit the pit. But if that fails too, the little ones usually, they'll have like the springs in your car. And if everything fails, it lands on those. You probably get hurt, but at least it won't. They're trying to make it so it doesn't kill you. The real large ones, they'll have pistons like three floors high. And if everything fails, it lands on those. That's the last resort. This can be dangerous work. A lot of guys get hurt. They'll leave a car there, you know, the elevator on the floor, that while you're building them, and you'll go get something and everything, and another guy jumps on and takes it up somewhere. So you're not paying attention. You slide the doors open and step in there, and the, the car's not there anymore. In a runaway, the car is moving upwards. Starts out, and it was all of a sudden, you hear, we heard a big whirl, like, mm -hmm. And the, I mean, the motor looks like it was full open, and all of a sudden, boom, it took off. You know, you can actually feel your stomach go, boom, going so quick and so fast. What happens if you hit the machinery at the very top? It'll either damage the elevator bed or it'll puncture the floor, and whatever's up there will go right into the car you're in. And if the car is stuck between floors? You can't really get out that quick because you, you don't want the car moving on you, and it'll That'll cut you, you know, cut you in half. Have you ever been in a car that was falling? Uh, yeah. Yeah, it was, well, it was an outside lift, uh, and it was raining, and uh, we went down about eight floors, and it finally uh, was dry enough on it to stop it. The brakes were wet. And the rails, so it went about <laughs> nine floors, and finally it was dry enough where the brakes stopped it. There's a saying when you're building a house and you're on the roof, never walk backwards. 
You've got this crane that has that's holding something on a cable. Yeah, and then they, you know, you guide it in and drop it wherever you want. You know, you might have three or four guys uh, loading some a larger load, and, and you're you're loading it, and they go, "Don't turn your back on it, and don't hang on to it too long, or you know, in case something happens, it'll drag you off the building." And like on windy days and stuff, they have to shut down if it's too windy. So you know, you have to be uh, kind of alert. Can I ask, if you don't mind, to describe what happened with the crane and, and your accident? Well, it shifted, hit me, and then knocked me into the pit about 30 feet. Yeah, I kind of broke my back. Speaking with retired elevator constructor David White, for KVMR, I'm Al Stoller. That's our newscast for this Monday, February 14th. If you missed a section of tonight's news, you can visit us online at kvmr.org. Stick around up ahead its wings, the Women's International News Gathering Service. Playwright and performance artist Carolyn Gage performs one of her sermons for a lesbian tent revival. From linguistics to chemistry, she discusses varying facets of love. Highlighting our poverty of words when it comes to explanations of romance and relationships. By the end of Gage's sermon, you may be questioning certain practices we've never thought twice about. Come along as Gage takes us on a truly unique journey this Valentine's Day. Then at 7, we have Democracy Now! with host Amy Goodman. The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza. Thanks for listening to the news this evening. I'm Kelly Reese, signing off. Happy Valentine's Day.